and welcome to Books in the Wild, the podcast about exploring books. You might be familiar with the phrases, hot off the press, or mind your P's and Q's, but did you know that these terms come from printing? I mean, probably, actually. I guess it's not that difficult to figure out based on what the podcast is about, but today we're going to investigate a combination of book and printing terms and phrases. And I have enlisted a few fellow bookmakers to share their favorite terms. Some of them are probably familiar, though you might be surprised of their book art origins. And other terms are fairly specialized, but fun, because who doesn't want to talk about printers, devils, and hell boxes? But first, I've had a few people reach out with feedback about the podcast, and I want to say how much I appreciate that. Especially now, in the year of the great mess of 2020. It also made me realize that I have some new listeners, and so I'd like to take a moment to reintroduce myself. You probably already know that this is a podcast about book arts and book history. My name is Carrie Mikilani Schroeder, and I am a book artist currently based in San Antonio, Texas. I make limited edition artist books under my press name of Coyote Bones Press. I also co-own and co-design, co-sell, book art-themed enamel pins under the name The Paper Carnival with Julie Chen of Flying Fish Press. And I teach book art classes and workshops at Southwest School of Art and other places when and where I can. If you'd like to learn more, you can always check out coyotebonespress.com or follow me on Instagram at coyotebonespress. I make this podcast on my own for fun or to curb crippling existential dread. But, you know, tomato, tomato these days. So feedback is always appreciated and encouraged. And if you enjoy the podcast, tell a friend, or maybe check out the enamel pins or books, or just buy a book or zine or anything from any artist right now, if you're in a position to do so. Because I think, and although I understand there is so much happening in the world right now, and so many causes to fight for. I don't think I would be out of line to say that during these times of strife and uncertainty that a lot of us, I think most of us, turn to art for solace, either in the form of reading a book, watching a film, listening to music, drawing, journaling. These aren't just pastimes or hobbies. There's something deeper and essential to humanity, and they're needed. And to all the makers out there, your work is valid and necessary. The world needs you, creative, beautiful people, to survive, to show not only what the world looks like, but how it could look like. But now let's get started with the book talk. Let's start with the etymology of bookish entomology. Let's start with the book bugs. Bookworm. This term first started being used to describe someone with a ravenous appetite for knowledge, devouring books, as far back as the late 1500s. It was used as a derogatory term, and maybe still is, though I've never met anyone ashamed of their love of books. And although there is no such thing as an actual bookworm, 
The term does refer to several different insects that are known for eating books. This includes the larvae of wood beetles, cockroaches, moths, and the dreaded silverfish. These insects like to eat the glue, leather, and even the paper of the books, leaving holes like little burrows through the pages. Then we have the infamous type louse. This quote is from the Boston Post in 1922. The foreman of the office where I began promised to show me a type louse, and he kept his promise. One day, while he was making up a form on the imposing stone, that is, placing the set type between the column rules and sopping it down with a wet sponge, as printers do in the country offices, he exclaimed, Come quick, Newt, there's a type louse. I rushed to his side. Right there it is, he whispered. Bend close to that type and look sharp. I followed instructions, and while I was rubbering diligently, he socked together under my nose two sections of water-soaked type with great violence, whereupon the water squirted up to my expectant face and eyes. In short, finding type lice was a prank played on new apprentice printers, like a snipe hunt, so that they could be squirted in the eye with dirty carcinogenic water. All in good fun, of course. I love the term printer's devil. I mean, as I understand it, it's just the name for basically, you know, the kid in the print shop who had to do all the, all the crap work that nobody else wanted to, to do. What I love about it is how it kind of indicates that printing can be powerful. Printing can be dark. You know, it's a, it's like a, a mystic art and the fact that it's, you know, so inky and black. Uh, I don't know. I, I love that it's both kind of dorky and innocent, but also dark and mysterious. To go along with that, I, something I recently uh, learned watching the documentary Pressing On, uh, the term hell box, you know, the box of type that has been spilled out and just thrown into a box and probably the printer's devil was going to have to sort out the hell box all kinds of silly satanic things associated with printing and print shops. And yeah, I don't know. I love them. A printer's devil is another name for a printer's apprentice. The origin of the term, as mentioned, is fuzzy, but all tend to stem from the same idea of printing being of the black arts, either due to the ink-stained hands of the printers or just as a scapegoat for everything that goes wrong in a print shop. Or just the act of printing itself being sort of devilish, magical. One of the printer's devil's jobs is to sort through the hell box, which is a bin of unsorted, usually damaged metal type, and as it waits to be metal down to cast into new type, which is called typecasting. Eh? Eh? These little lead letters are called metal type, or assort. I've heard conflicting stories about whether the term out of sorts comes from printing, but it could be, and I would like to officially claim it for our own. Metal type are stored in compartmented drawers called a type case. They are organized by typeface or font, point size, and for capitalization purposes, 
majuscule and minuscule letters are kept separately in drawers in either the uppercase or the lowercase, which of course we still refer to today, even if we are typing or writing rather than reaching into the drawer. So now let's say you want to make a book. You tell your printer's devil to start composing the text. But when you're ready to set type, be sure to mind your P's and Q's, because they're easy to confuse, being that metal type is backward and held upside down on the composing stick. Backward letters are called wrong reading as opposed to right reading, as the letters will appear when they're actually printed on the paper. Once you have composed all of the letters into lines that you would like to print, that form gets slid onto a metal tray called a galley. This is usually first printed on a small proofing press. This preliminary print is called a galley proof, which will be used for proofreading before actually going into production printing. This might be a little more niche of a term, but in the publishing world, pre-market books are still called galley proofs, even though most books these days are not letterpress printed. Although, of course, in book arts, there are still a lot of books being letterpress printed, but mostly it's reserved for more specialized, limited editions, um, nothing really mass market. When you're satisfied with your galley proof, now you're ready to lock up the form. You slide the block of type carefully from the galley tray onto the press bed, using rectangular blocks of wood or metal called furniture to hold the form in place. Then to really secure the form, you use an expandable metal contraption called a coin to lock it in place. Once you have coined a phrase, you're ready to print. You need to make sure that you have all of your material to be printed on the press bed ahead of the deadline, which is an actual literal line indicated on the press that marks the limit of your printable area. Anything set past the deadline won't make it to print. As letterpress printing started to evolve, printing large editions with movable type was tedious, time-consuming, and expensive. It also meant that a lot of type would be tied up and unavailable for any other projects that the printer might need to do. And if that edition were to be reprinted, it means that you would have to compose all of that text all over again. So one option developed in the late 19th century was a hot metal typecasting machine with an attached keyboard. Compositors could type into the keyboard and the machine would cast entire lines of type to be printed saving time from having to set each individual letter, this linotype machine was quickly adopted by many newspaper printers, and the phrase, hot off the press, was used to describe newspapers that were so current that they were practically still warm from the printing process using newly cast hot metal lines of type. Another printing option for very large editions would be to make a relief printing plate rather than bothering with setting individual letters. Movable type would still be set, but then a mold would be made of the form or the composed lines of type. Then a molten metal alloy would be poured into the mold, making a printable plate. This plate is called a stereotype and only prints duplicates from the original form. Just identical copies over and over. Nothing original, nothing unexpected. And the French word for stereotype is cliché. Two more points for printing terms used in daily language. Of 
course, you probably wouldn't just print one page at a time. That would be silly. So you would probably want to print at least two up or four up on a larger piece of paper. And then you would fold down that sheet into either one fold, becoming a folio, or two folds, which would give you four leaves or eight pages, called a quarto. And then folding that down one more time would give you eight leaves, or 16 pages, called an octavo. Of course, you can also just make a booklet or zine using just one page folded down, often called an eightfold zine or instabook. Potentially the simplest form of bookbinding is the instabook. Um, which is a format that I was familiar with long before I ever heard the term Instabook. It's basically one of those eight-page folded pamphlets that you you fold it and then you make the little tear and then you unfold it and it has eight pages uh, out of a single sheet of paper and no glue and no stitching or anything like that. The Instabook word very much describes what it is and it also brings it into a very contemporary setting since we're talking about so much of this stuff on Instagram. The hashtag Instabooks is a, is a confusing place to wander. Either way, however many pages you choose, in order to crease and fold these, you would probably use your trusty bone folder. I love how if you use a bone folder to flatten a fold, you're boning down the fold. It sounds grandiose, like batten down the hatches or like a euphemism or like something you'd yell. Bone, bone down the fold. It's ridiculous. I love it. I can promise you that every bookbinder has their favorite bone folder. In fact, they probably have a whole stash of bone folders, but they still have their favorite. Like how I have a cereal spoon that's just for cereal, or bathroom shoes just for the bathroom, or maybe I'm revealing too much about myself. But a bone folder is exactly what it sounds like. It's a tool used for creasing and folding that is usually made of bone, but some are made with Teflon in order to help prevent accidental burnishing on the paper or cloth. While I originally thought of terms um, like Hellbox or Printer's Devil that have always made me smile when I've heard them, after considering the question further, I would have to say that my favorite term that could be applied to bookbinding or printmaking is burnish, because the act itself um, of applying force and that sense of finishing something with crisp, clean edges or making it bright has a certain appeal. The sound of it, the sound of the word burnish, appeals to me greatly as well. Once all your pages are printed and folded down, now we're ready to start working on the book block. And I know in previous episodes, I've championed the notion that 
Books can take on any form. And what do you mean by just a regular book? But for this episode, I'm sort of talking about regular books, meaning the codex. Codex comes from a Latin word meaning the trunk of a tree or woodblock. The codex consists of several sheets of paper, vellum, or parchment called leaves. These leaves are then folded into folios, also related to the words folium and foliage. Then these folios are bound on one side and attached inside a, a protective cover. So, a bunch of pages bound on one side with a cover, pretty much what people think about when they think of a book. In this next section, I'm reading almost verbatim from the Conservation Center for Art and Historic Artifacts Guide on Book Terminology, which I will have a link to in the show notes. The bound book or codex has at its heart either a text or the blank leaves on which a text can be written. Handwritten books are known as manuscripts. The term manuscript can also be used for any handwritten document. Collectively, the handwritten, printed, or blank leaves of a book are known as the text block or book block. As you flip through the text block, you are turning the leaves of the book. Each leaf has two sides. Each side is a page. A book, therefore, has twice as many pages as it has leaves. The earliest bound books in Europe were written on parchment or vellum, or treated animal skins. Vellum refers specifically to calf skin, where parchment is used more universally to mean a skin of any animal, though traditionally goat, sheep, or calf skin, that has been treated with alkaline chemicals, stretched, dried, and scraped. This process produces a smooth, cream-colored writing surface. But because parchment has not been tanned like leather, it is sensitive to water and will deform and shrink if exposed to moisture and heat. Paper was introduced in Europe in the 12th century CE and gradually replaced parchment as a cheaper, lighter writing support. With the invention of the printing press around 1450, the widespread availability of paper led to a dramatic increase in book production. Until the 19th century, Western paper was made almost exclusively from linen rags derived from flax fibers. Cotton was introduced as a paper fiber in 1580, but it was not common until the invention of the cotton gin. Also, side note fun fact, during a rag shortage in the mid-1800s, and also when Egyptian tombs were being ransacked, mummies were shipped to Europe and the U.S. to be ground up and used for things like pigment or medicine, and their linen wrappings were even used for paper. This is covered more in detail in Dard Hunter's book, Paper Making, The History and Techniques of an Ancient Craft, also included in the show notes. But back to making the book. To start attaching your pages together, you would nest the folios in groups of usually fours or sixes. These nestings of pages are called a choir, signature, or gathering. Then you would get all of your signatures together, now called the text block or book block and start sewing. Once sewn, you could trim the edges if you'd like, perhaps on a guillotine? My favorite book art term is easily just the guillotine because I love it. I love it 
as a stack cutter, I don't even know what an official term would be for it because it is just the guillotine. And I, I loved it so much because manual ones, if you get to know them, they just align with your body and you will never mess anything up once you have the relationship with that guillotine. So, uh, electronic ones, other ones, I mean, I don't know, people have their relationships with those, but I really loved the manual ones that I used to know. After everything is tidy and trimmed, you would line the spine of the book and ready the covers to be attached, which there are so many ways to do depending on the structure you have in mind. I'm not even really going to get into it. But either way, when you are covering the book, you want to make sure to apply your adhesive evenly and to bone down the covering material consistently, lest you have air pockets or saggy turn-ins. And nobody wants a saggy turn-in. A holiday is a space on the flat side of a book cover where the adhesive didn't adhere so that there's a little bubble under there. That's a holiday. And a pencil pocket is a space where the covering didn't adhere to the edge of the board so that you could perhaps put a very tiny pencil inside between the board and the covering material. <laughs> and both of these terms are I learned from Don Etherington and perhaps he learned them in London. So now you have a completed book. Once you're finished, you could make a clamshell box for it if you'd like. This involves building a set of nesting trays that fit the book snugly. Snugly? Is that a word? Trays that are custom fit to the book. The trays are covered in book cloth or leather or whatever covering material you would like and attached to a case with a spine, similar to a, a book actually. When covering the trays, the corners can be tricky, and though there are different methods, of course, I first learned how to make clamshells by cutting a little ear and miter of cloth to overlap on the corners, which I know absolutely does not translate well into an audio format, but it's precise and it ends up looking pretty seamless. The ear and miter uh, refers to cutaways you make when wrapping a turn-in on a book cover and it's my particular favorite because it's always confusing and <laughs> I can never really explain it or do it until I'm actually doing it. And an, a fun anecdote, I remember Julie Chen telling us in school that she really wanted to, like, as a retirement project, open a bar on the corner somewhere um, <laughs> called the Ear and Mitre. And I just imagine all these book artists and bibliophiles hanging out, drinking beer and chatting and laughing at the Ear and Mitre on the corner in some town <laughs> somewhere.
My favorite book terminology is definitely the connection between the book and the body. The part where your pages attach at the back is called a spine. The top is referred to as the head. The bottom is the tail. The sloping edges from the spine before the covers are shoulders. All of these terms technically make sense, but I still think it sounds sensual, even poetic, especially given how intimate the experience is of holding a book close enough to read what's inside and how reliant the entire object is on touch. They can be simple and practical, but also lush and decadent and make you just want to devour them, just eat them up. Also like human flesh. <laughs> Sorry. So these are a few of my favorite bookish terms, and I hope that you enjoyed them as well. Thank you so much to those who contributed their favorites. In the order that the clips appeared, I want to thank Mark Brown, Brianna Toswell of Penrose Press, Faith Hale, Kevin Kissinger, Laura Durback, Mary Boffman from the Austin Book Arts Center, and Selena Matranga. I have links to their projects in the show notes as well on booksinthewild.com. And if there's something about book art or book history that you are particularly interested in, send me a message and I'll see what I can do, or what we can do. Booksinthewildpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Carrie Mikilani Schroeder, and you can find me at coyotebonespress.com or Instagram at coyotebonespress.com.